Thank you to the worship team for a glorious time of praise and worship for the opportunity to enter into his presence to his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's good to see all your faces this morning and once again uh, I'm thankful to have an opportunity. I say that every week and it's because every week I'm thankful to have the opportunity to share the word of God with you. And um, we just ask that you uh, pray with me for a moment as we get into the word, but before we get into the word. Thank you, Lord, for, for your presence here. We've sensed your presence already. We're gathered in your name. We've lifted praise and worship to you, and your word says that you inhabit the praise of your people. You inhabit our praise. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the hearts of your people here today. And I just pray, Father, that as we look into your word this morning, that you would continue to act and to move, to reveal yourself, to minister to each and every heart. Thank you, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we are going to pick up basically where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 4. We've been looking the last two weeks at the third chapter of Matthew. I'm going to just open to it and and, uh, read the first 11 verses. That's what our text will be today. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Today I'm reading from the NIV, which... Is the same as your pew Bible, if you're looking into that. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Lord, bless your word to our hearts 
and our understanding today, we ask in Jesus' name. On November the 6th, 1860, a folksy, down-to-earth attorney from the state of Illinois was elected as President of the United States. Abraham Lincoln captured 40% of the popular vote in a four-man race for the White House. He swept every state in the North. But the South was a different story. He won none of them. Lincoln, whose birthday we observed just this past week, was elected president of a nation that was deeply divided and in great turmoil. States' rights and slavery were hot-button issues, and they divided the nation pretty much along geographical lines between North and South. The country was a boiling cauldron ready to overflow. On December 20th, just 44 days after Lincoln's election, that cauldron was tipped when South Carolina seceded from the Union and six other states followed suit in the next few weeks. Within two months, the Confederate States of America was formed. On March 4th, 1861, Lincoln was inaugurated as President of the United States. Less than six weeks later, on April the 12th, the newly formed Confederate Army lobbed artillery fire on the Union garrison that was holding Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. The battle ensued all day, and the war between the states had officially begun. Lincoln was thrust into a crucible of testing just weeks after his inauguration and assuming the office of president. His leadership would be tested for the next four years as the bloodiest chapter in American history was written, and the future of the Union hung in the balance. The last two weeks we have looked at Matthew chapter 3 and last week focusing on the inauguration of Jesus, not as a president, but on his inauguration into the ministry of Messiah for which he was born. We looked last week at what happened at his baptism, at that inauguration, when the Spirit of God descended as John the Baptist baptized him. And rested on him and stayed with him and anointed him. And then we saw how the Father, after the heavens tore open, spoke from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the confirmation of God's Spirit coming upon Jesus and the affirmation of the Father speaking from heaven equaled the revelation to the people of Israel that this was the Messiah this was the Christ, this was the Son of God, for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus was about to begin his ministry. He was about to go throughout Israel, preaching and teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about God in ways that no one had ever heard, healing, doing miracles, delivering people from a demonic possession and oppression. This was, was what was about to begin. But before any of that happened, first 
he was thrust into an epic spiritual showdown. He was about to face in the wilderness the deceiver, the father of lies, the accuser, the devil, Satan. Abraham Lincoln was tested as commander-in-chief, prosecuting a war that was fought by other soldiers with a union at stake. For Jesus, his was a one-on-one battle in the wilderness against Satan. The stakes were even higher here. It wasn't just a nation that was hanging in the balance. Hanging in the balance was God's plan of salvation for the world. Let's look at this passage, Matthew chapter 4, and these 11 verses. The first thing to take note of, appropriately in the very first verse, is that it is the Spirit of God that leads Jesus into the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit leads. God tests. The devil tempts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use different words. The the word here is translated as led. They use different words to convey how Jesus moved into this confrontation, but they all carry pretty much the same import. He was compelled. He was thrust. He was led, not against his will, but he knew this confrontation had to take place. Jesus was baptized at the Jordan, and it would appear very quickly after that he was led into the wilderness. All three of the gospel writers that record this show us him being baptized and then immediately going into the desert. There was no honeymoon period here. When a president is elected here, often there is a what is called a honeymoon period where things go easy for him. The Congress plays nice with him. The press does. For Jesus, there was no honeymoon period after his inauguration. He went right into that confrontation that he knew had to take place. It was part of the Father's plan. It's important to note that it is Jesus who takes the battle to the enemy. It was Jesus who took the battle to the enemy. The Spirit led him into the desert. Why did this have to take place? Last week we talked about why Jesus had to be baptized. As we look in this passage in chapter 4, it begs the question, why did it have to take place? Well, first of all, he had a calling to prove. He had a calling to prove. Jesus had the affirmation of the Father at his baptism. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let's look for a minute back in the Old Testament in Job chapter 1. Most of us know the story of Job. He was a righteous man, a man who followed the Lord. And God allowed Satan to test Job, to try him. He took everything from him. Look what it says in beginning in verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? God would not allow the enemy the opportunity to even make a similar claim about Jesus. He proclaimed him to be the Son of God, and he sent him right out to face the enemy in the wilderness. Theologian J. Dwight Pentecost wrote, The purpose of the temptation was to demonstrate his, Jesus, sinlessness, and thus prove his moral right to be Savior Sovereign. The son is tested in this showdown. The father tests through Satan's temptation. For Job's test, Job was a man of wealth. He had everything he could want. He had a family, and all that was taken away from him to see if he would curse God, and he did not. For Jesus... He has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. And most Bible scholars believe this was a total fast. No food, no water. No one could survive for 40 days and 40 nights without water unless God was supernaturally enabling them. So Jesus, in his humanity, because he was, though fully God, he was fully man as well, in his humanity, he's near the point of death. So while Satan's testing or trying of Job meant taking everything from him, Jesus had nothing, and now he was about to face Satan, who would bring temptation to him that would get... uh, uh, give him an opportunity to have everything that a human heart could desire. He had a calling to prove. But the second thing is he had a curse to break. He had a curse to break. Last week, when I finished the message about Jesus' inauguration and the Father affirming him as his son, this is my beloved son. Our brother Layman came up to me. He's not here today. He said he wouldn't be here. He wished he could hear this next message because he was reflecting on how Satan, the very first thing that Satan says to Jesus is, if you are the son of God, he begins to attack the word of the father to the son. 
Now, as I prepared this message, I read some commentary, and many would say, well, Satan was, could, you could easily translate this as Satan saying, since you are the Son of God, because Satan didn't doubt that Jesus was God. He didn't question that. And I believe that's true, but I think, think nonetheless, he's still, because he's the devil and he's a liar and he's an accuser, he would still come against Jesus with that word, if. If you are the Son of God. Even though he knew he couldn't cause Jesus to doubt his calling and who he was, he still did that. He is the one who fell from heaven because he tried to usurp the worship that was due only to God. He tried to raise himself up to be as God was, and God cast him out of heaven. He had to know that he wasn't going to get that throne, but yet he tried it anyway. I think the same thing's happening here. If you are the Son of God, Satan says to Jesus. The slippery slope of doubt is what brought Jesus to this confrontation in the first place. The slippery slope of doubt that Adam and Eve in the beginning went down. It caused the fall of man. Let's look back in Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, we'll read beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent, the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the liar, Satan, says, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And man falls. Doubting God's word. Not trusting God. It led to the fall. Look at the three things in, in verse 6 that the writer of Genesis says. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, it compelled Eve and Adam to eat the fruit. These are the very three things that Jesus addresses in his confrontation with Satan in the desert. Good for food. Turn stones to bread. The Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, 
This is the lust of the flesh. It's a delight to the eyes. Here are all the kingdoms of the world. This is the lust of the eyes, John says. And finally, it was desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life, and we'll talk more about this. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. The very three things that caused Adam and Eve to fall in the beginning are the very three things that Jesus addresses in his confrontation with the enemy because it was necessary for Jesus to overcome in every area that man had fallen in the garden in order that the curse of death and sin ultimately could be broken. Let's look at the three temptations. The first, Satan comes and says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And again, remember, Jesus was fasting in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And all of the gospel writers seem to indicate that it was after this period of fasting that he was hungry. It speaks to the intensity with which Jesus had approached this testing he was probably so intensely in tune with God and, and doing whatever God had called him to do in those 40 days. It was after this period that he was hungry, and I think that was an understatement. He had to be nearly starving to death in his humanity. Satan tempts him. He says, prove your sonship, Jesus. You're the son of God. You're able to do anything you want. Take these stones and turn them into bread. Get something to eat. You'll feel better. Remember, it was the Spirit of God who led him into the wilderness. This was the Father's plan. He was taking the battle to Satan. And Jesus had to exercise obedience to the Father and faith in the plan of God. If, it, if he were to turn the stones into bread, he would be, by that act, declaring that the fleshly appetite is more important than submitting and being obedient to God's Word and to his ultimate purpose. Listen to the words of an old Scottish theologian named A.M. Fairburn. He wrote this Jesus had to live his personal life within limits necessary to man and in his perfect dependence on God. Had he transgressed either of these conditions, he ceased to be man's ideal brother in his humanity or God's ideal son. Man cannot create. He has to depend on sowing and reaping. But had Christ made a direct miracle, by a direct miracle, fed himself, he had lifted himself out of the cycle and system of, of humanity, had annulled the very nature of the terms which made him one with man. And while his supernatural power was his own, it existed not for him, but for us. He would have become disqualified to save men. If he had failed, 
he would have become disqualified to save men. Jesus rebuffs the temptation of Satan to turn the stones into bread by replying with a scripture verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if you look at that verse in the context of that, in, that entire passage, you see that it is a passage in which God is speaking to the people of Israel and reminding them how he provided for every need, how he sustained them in their 40 years in the wilderness. And he says, he, Moses said, speaking of God, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell. Know then in your heart that as a, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. God reminded the people of Israel that he was the one that sustained. Jesus knew that it was the Father who was sustaining him and would sustain him for however long it took for this confrontation to end. And he stood in faith and obedience to God. Adam and Eve had all that they needed in the garden, yet failed to walk in obedience to God's word to them, forbidding them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The lust of the flesh devoured them. You could see them in the garden. Well, we have it all. Well, not quite. There's that tree over there. There's that tree over there. Fruit's so tempting, it has to be good. So they ate and they fell, and all mankind fell with them. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus prevailed. Then came the second temptation. The second temptation from the enemy, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And this time Satan uses scripture. He says, cast yourself down. You don't need to worry about it. Don't need to be, we need to worry about getting hurt because it's written. Your father's word says he'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. God would sustain Jesus through the first temptation. Jesus trusted him. And Satan prays on that. Well, if you trust God so much, how about jumping off the pinnacle of the temple? You won't get hurt. He's going to bear you up by the angels. Could you see a Jesus descending from the pinnacle of the temple into the crowd 
borne up on angels' wings, defying gravity, awe and wonder, dazzling display of deity to the crowd? What could be wrong with that? Well, it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's plan. He resisted the first temptation, partly on the basis that he had to trust God's plan. He resisted the second temptation, partly on the basis that it was not God's plan. This isn't the way that he would be glorified. This was not the way. This would have been presumption, not faith. Jesus' faith in the Father didn't require him to test that faith because he had such confidence in God's word. There was no showy demonstration necessary here. Pride lurks at the root of such action. This is the pride of life that John talks about. Jesus replies again, this time from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Satan says, well, it is written in Psalm 91, is what he's quoting there. It is written that he'll command his angels concerning you, and you won't get hurt. And Jesus says, I know what's written. It's also written that you do not put the Lord your God to a test. I don't have to test my father. I know who he is. I know what he's done. I know who I am. I don't need to put him to the test. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the garden, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden was desirable for gaining wisdom. John Piper says that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they were declaring that they would be the ones who would decide what was good and what was evil. That's a perverted wisdom, which isn't wisdom at all. If they had maintained obedience and not eaten from that tree, they would have likely come to understand what good and evil was from the high moral ground rather rather than from the perspective of being a fallen human being. Pride drove them. Pride drove them to eat, and they ate, and they fell, and all mankind fell with them. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus prevailed. Then we come to the third temptation. This time, Satan says, takes him to a high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And we don't know how all this took place. The scripture doesn't explain it. Whether Satan transported Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, whether he transported him to this high mountain, but this is what happened. Somehow, the high mountain indicates that he had a vantage point by which, supernaturally, 
He saw all the kingdoms of the world. Not just Israel, not just Rome, not just Greece, but all the kingdoms of the world. Maybe from the the beginning of time to the end of time. All the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, all this, all this, I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. It's probably debatable among scholars, but I believe that what he's saying here is true. He had the authority to do it. If you look in Luke's gospel in the parallel account, it's that Jesus, Satan says that very thing. All these kingdoms have been given to me and they're mine to give to you. Well, some may say, well, he's the father of lies, but I think that he does have the authority. He had the authority. Not that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but the kingdoms of this world have come under the influence of the enemy since the fall, increasingly, more and more and more and more. So they were his to give. But it's interesting that Matthew and the other gospel writers too say he showed them the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I don't think whatever vision that Jesus had, I don't, whatever he saw, Satan wasn't showing him the poverty and the war and the hatred and everything that's bad about the kingdoms of, of the world, he was showing them him their splendor, their beauty, their majesty. It's yours if you just worship me. So the last of Satan's salvo of attack is an attempt once again, as he did back in eternity to usurp the authority and the worship that belonged only to God. It was for this that he was cast out of his position in heaven as an archangel. And it's a second attempt, once again, to cause Jesus to subvert the plan of the Father because this wasn't the plan. The kingdoms of this world, it says in the book of Revelation, someday in the future, have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. It was all Jesus's anyway. He was going to inherit it. Satan was trying to get him to subvert the plan of God and to avoid the cross by which he would eventually rule and reign over all of the earth. Whether Satan knew the plan of salvation exactly or not, I don't know. But he knew that the Son of God had come to earth and there was some plan and he was going to try to get him to subvert it. And Jesus, well, he replies with Scripture again. But first of all, he says, Away from me, Satan! Get out of here! I've had enough! 
It is written, you worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you think I'm going to bow my knee to you, you've got another thing coming. Worship is only for God. Nobody else. We told you that back in eternity when we kicked you out of heaven. So you go and you take all those third of an angels that fell with you and you get out of here. Satan was trying to appeal to Jesus by showing him, in a sense, what was pleasing to the eye, the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world. The fruit that was hanging on that tree was pleasing to the eye. It's the lust of the eyes. I gotta have that. I gotta have that. I can't live without it. It's beautiful. That fruit looks too good to resist. So they ate it and they fell. And all mankind fell with them. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus prevailed. Hallelujah. Jesus' resistance here was not a passive one. He didn't wring his hands in the presence of Satan. He wasn't just like, oh, please go away. It was not a passive one. Each time the enemy assaulted him, he fought back with the truth of God's word. He crushed the enemy in his attempts to thwart God's perfect plan. And at the conclusion of the testing, it says in the 11th verse, then the devil left him. I don't know what the Greek word is here for left, but I think it kind of means hightailed it out of there. <laughs> then the devil left him, and the angels of God came and attended to him. The perfection of the Son had been demonstrated. The approval of the Father was authenticated. God's plan of salvation would unfold as planned. And Jesus, after the angels ministered to him in the desert, got up and he walked out. And the ministry of the Messiah was about to begin for the next three years preaching, teaching, proclaiming, healing, delivering, doing miracles, further affirming him, his place as the Savior, as the Sovereign, as the Lord. Derek, can you go and maybe begin to play that song that you sang, that beautiful song, as we draw to a close? None of us, none of us here will ever endure 
what Jesus did in the endured in the wilderness. None of us. None of us, I don't think, maybe I shouldn't say none of us, but unlikely that any of us will ever come face to face with Satan himself. But when he fell from heaven, a third of the angels fell with him, and there are demonic powers that are at work in our world from that time to today, and they seek to influence us, and they seek to thwart the plan of God in our lives the way Satan tried to thwart the plan of God, of, uh, God's plan for salvation and God's plan for Jesus as the Messiah. When we face those trials, we need to remember that God is at work. James chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because the perfecting of your faith God is perfecting your faith through that. It builds endurance and perseverance. And he says endurance must finish its work so that you be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's what the trials, the testings that God brings into our lives is all about. To mature us, to grow us, to strengthen us in our walk with him. That whole chapter is a sermon for another time. I've done it before. (laughs) I'd like to do it again sometime, but remember God's at work. The powers of darkness are at work. Stand firm like Jesus did on the rock of God's word. Know what his word says about who you are. Know what his word says about what you've done. Know what his word says about who the Father is. And stand firm on that. When doubt comes, when fear comes, stand firm. Apply what clearly is truth. Take the fight to the enemy. When we know who we are in Christ, We can take the fight to the enemy. We can defeat him, not in our own power, but in the power that Jesus has given us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can walk away victorious. Because Jesus overcame, because the curse is broken, we, the Scripture says, are overcomers also. Take the fight to the enemy. Don't be a punching bag for the demons of darkness. Another takeaway from this message as we close. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust God and who he is and what he said and obey it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the curse is broken, that Jesus ultimately triumphed, not just in the wilderness in his battle against the enemy, but at the cross, at Gethsemane. 
We thank you, Lord, that every day that you walked on the face of the earth, Jesus, you were winning the battle for salvation for each of one of us, that your perfect, sinless, holy life and your sacrificial death upon the cross and your perfect obedience won the victory for us. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand firm, to stand firm in who we are, in who you have said that we are, sons and daughters of God, sons of the Most High. Lord, we ask that you would Strengthen us even today for the battles we may face in the coming days or weeks. And we'll give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise for what you will do in us and through us. Thank you, Lord, that where man at the beginning failed, Jesus prevail. It's in his name we pray. Amen.